hell are you doing? You've broken my cup, my saucer, the tea's gone everywhere. It's in my lap. Oh, sorry, Chris, but uh, I resign. Resign? From what? From this podcast. You can't resign. A, you're not paid. And B, we've got 12 more episodes to record. No, I've made up my mind. I want you to find an old typewriter, find a black and white photo of me, and type X's all over my face. I then want you to get a robotic arm and drop that photo into a filing cabinet. Or... I could just send an email. Which is a shame, because we've got some fantastic interviews coming up, some interpretations. You're going to miss out on a hell of a lot. It's your funeral. All right. Well, I want a comfier chair. And um, could you validate my parking? No. Welcome to Free For All, an episode-by-episode episode podcast about one of the most endlessly fascinating television shows ever made, The Prisoner. Each week we'll be taking an in-depth look at the 17 episodes of The Prisoner. I'm Chris Bainbridge, Senior Lecturer in Broadcast and Creative Media, and I'm also a Prisoner devotee. And I'm Kai Ross, a film writer, restaurateur, and Chris's mate, which is how I got this gig. We're back, and we uh, gamely proceed on. It's your funeral. Directed by Robert Asher. An unusual choice, mm. because he was a comedy man. Yes, didn't he direct uh, Morecambe Wise? He did the, oh... And the Norman inter- Wisdom. The Intelligence Men. Yes. Which is, it gets a reputation as being a terrible... Oh, it just yeah. didn't work. They didn't work on the big three. It's, it's, it's no better or worse than most of those kind of comedies. No, it's well, got Cannon it's, and Ball did it's, it, didn't they? Oh my God! The boys in blue. <laughs> I nearly, I nearly got to see that at the cinema. We went to all the way to Rill to mm. watch The Empire Strikes Back, and that's how we had to. It was a journey yeah. to get there, and we got there, and it was sold out. Oh. And I was, I've never strength so much in my life. I couldn't have folded my arms closer to my own rib cage in defiance. So upset. So we had to go and see Tron, which I deliberately didn't enjoy yeah. as, a, as an act of rebellion. It was either Tron or The Boys in Blue. I thought, no, I can't even <laughs> I can't even pretend to hate this while enjoy, this just, this like the worst idea. Val Guest did that. The director of the Quasimus Experiment. Yeah. And Quasimus, a pretty fine director actually ends up with that. But famously, Robert Asher uh, was sacked, wasn't he? Midway through this production. Well, I think we're going to find today that a lot of what happened behind the scenes mm. is a lot more interesting than what happened on the screen. Yes, indeed. This was, I guess, what, what, what's the production number on this? This is production order eight. So we're halfway. Is it only eight? It's I only eight, that. yeah. Because it seems to me that by this stage, McGowan's temper was just fraying. Mm. The pressure was building up. I think he'd, 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 it was just amassing on his shoulders to such an extent that he was starting to lose it, and um, he got... This is an incredibly bad-tempered But bearing, bearing in mind, this is, you know, in production order, this is before episodes like Change of Mind, uh, but ABC, The General, Hammer and Tamville, and Many Happy Returns, which you've already covered, were but, produced later. They were produced oh, after they? this episode, yeah. Oh, right. So it show, gives you an example. The previous episode that was shot was The Schizoid Man, ah. and then we lead into It's Your Funeral, in production order. So it just gives you an idea of where we are. All right, so in a way, he's maybe this is the kind of period when he realised um, his dream miniseries mm. with its wonderful allegory and its tight kind of construction was actually starting to become a bit of a, 
a sort of standard ITC thing. It was being maybe taken off him a little bit. I think he was taken on too much. I think he'd taken on too much. I mean, he was writing. He was directing. Mm. He was producing. He was, you know, he was responsible. You know, the money that Lou Grade gave, you know, ultimately came down to, to him, really, at the end of the, oh, end yeah, of the day. Oh, yeah, yeah. So, I, think, I think by this point, Mark Steen was starting to see his influence mm. ebb. But it seems that the, the the main guy who took all the flack was was Robert Asher, who yeah, apparently fled in tears, having been uh, McGowan gave him a, a hairdryer moment, apparently, and right. uh, and off he off he popped. This genial man. Apparently, according to Annette Andre, Patrick McGowan just cut him to pieces in the middle of the studio in front of everybody. Tony Sloman, the film librarian, basically commented that he'd never seen a more unhappy person than Robert Asher on the set of It's Your Funeral. Yeah. So already, with even with your director, we've started on quite a, a, yeah. a dark <laughs> footing, haven't we? I suspect, yeah, he's never really crossed swords with Magoon again. So did, did Magoon basically, in, in all but name, direct this episode? Or half of it, possibly? I think it's always going to be hard to tell. Yeah. Because Robert actually still gets to, gets to credit. He does, yes. There was an interview with Annette Andre um, for the magazine Cult TV. Do you remember Cult TV? Yes, yes. Um, she said that you were stuck in this awful set, which was very depressing, because obviously most of it was shot yeah, yeah. at uh, MGM Bourne Wood. I believe Pat was having, or going to have, a nervous breakdown, recalled Darren Nesbitt. Mm. Mark Eden also commented Pat McGowan was going through a very, very bad time and teetering on the edge of a nervous breakdown because of the pressure on him. I seem to remember that he had a big row with the director, fired him, and directed the rest of the episode himself. It didn't make for a happy time. No, no. And then famously, there was a fight scene with Mark Eden. Oh, yeah, when they rolled down the, uh, the embankment. Yeah, so Mark Eden in his brilliant Ma- pink jacket. Yeah, Mark Eden, who's a bit of a unit. Yeah. He's, of the two, he, he's the heavyweight and McGowan is the, uh, the sort of welterweight. But that's, I, I find that quite interesting because... Frank Mayers normally does the, the fight sequences. Yeah. But for this, McGowan is actually doing the fight sequences. Maybe it was for the close-ups, but apparently McGowan had his hands around Mark Eden's <laughs> yeah. neck. And Mark Eden was terrified because of the look in McGowan's face. He was like, he'd lost it. He was actually throttling me. He went a bit hell drivers, didn't he? Do you yeah. Know this, this performance in hell drivers. There's method acting. And well, there's, and there's <laughs> attempted murder. <laughs> I mean, Annette Andre also stated that she wasn't terribly happy working with McGowan. Mm. She did try to get out of doing the programme because he was very rude to her. Yeah, I think she he was very dismissive of her her take uh, and, and her acting, basically. Yeah. I mean, she was fairly new on the scene. But yeah, I mean, so, so she was, you know, a very delicate flower who needed a bit of yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. nurturing. And but instead... There's, there's also a rumour that he tried to edit some of her scenes out. She, she claims that he was a madman. Mm. She said, um, I tried to talk to him at one point and all he would do would be to put you down. Yeah. So obviously this is only one person's side of the well, story. Uh, it seems to be about eight. Three people. <laughs> <laughs> like four people if <laughs> we you haven't count Robert Asher. Yeah. <laughs> it was, uh, yeah, for some, I think it was a bit of a, like a maybe lancing of the boil in this because mm. I, it, it's only this episode that you get to hear of this, this level of malcontent. Mm. Um, and it's not. I mean, we're only halfway through. Oh yeah, I think. Well, I think he possibly learned his lesson. Mm. Um, I heard. I think maybe in a later episode we'll hear the same sort of thing was happening again, and maybe sort of Tomlin mm. sort of t- 
had a word. Yeah. Uh, but I think it was like, so I'm, I'm sure, he, you know, he's, he's a good man, McGoohan. You know, I'm sure he, uh, he would have felt, actually, this, I've, I've lost it. I'm, I'm felt yeah. it, it's incredibly unprofessional, if anything. Yeah. And he was a professional. But I mean, I mean, I hero worship McGoohan. Mm. I'm both do. He's an idol of mine. But I think his, his treatment of her was despicable, mm. I think. He, he does not come out of this episode very well. And it's, it's in his performance as well. He's mm. just like a knotted... He's just, he seems to be in a bad temper. Yeah. He can't quite filter out his... his, his Contempt. His, his fury. <laughs> yeah. and, it, and it's all there. I mean, if I can... I've got a wonderful book by um, Ian Rakoff, who wrote uh, or will, co- will co-write um, Living in Harmony. And he was, a, brought, he was an editor brought in at this stage. And this is what he said about It's Your Funeral. The commissioned writer, Michael Cramoy, was given a limiting brief. He was to write a story around existing stock material. This was the least original script in the series, a fabricated, uninspired storyline implanted in material already shot, like the cutout games for children where heads can be switched to different bodies. Mm. And the primary weakness was compounded by further carelessness in the production. So, I mean, this is, I don't think this is an especially well regarded. I mean, that's, that, that's, that's how it started. Well, the we've thing got, is, yeah, we've got a load of stock footage. Could you put a plot in there? Exactly, yeah. And there's so much reused footage oh, yeah. in this episode. There's a little bit of Port Marion uh, exterior footage where they're holding up the um, number two pictures of, of Darren Nesbitt that's right, yeah. and uh, Andre von Gesigen. And that's about it. I think the, the shot of number six. And Andre's character, basically well, running around number eight or Monique, yeah. uh, as they walk, you know, as they go to the the bell tower, that's stand-ins. Yeah, like see Mayer and, and another standing because it is a, a long shot, isn't it? Yeah, I think we've already established if they're shot from the back, it's not them. <laughs> yeah, or from a from a distance. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But this is quite an interesting one because it's it doesn't feel like a prisoner episode. No, it's it, there's no, there's no allegory. There's, no, there's, at all. There's, there's, there isn't there isn't even an escape attempt. No. And he kind of has one in, in a way. He, he he ends up with basically a, a kind of gun to the head moment where mm. he's got he's got a bit of leverage and he doesn't use it at all. And it's yeah, it's it's kind of uninspired in that way. And it's a, it's a plot that could. It's it's very yeah. It it could fit into an American drama serial yes. quite easily. Which, based on Michael Cramoy's uh, history, that kind of makes sense. I mean, he wrote for The Saint. Mm. He wrote quite a few episodes for The Saint. But he also ran for Dragnet. Uh, ah, the, really? The police is, he, is he an American writer? He was an American writer, yeah. He wrote for The Baron and also Rin Tin Tin, the uh, <laughs> cut price uh, lassie. Oh, uh, I think many, many will disagree with you there. <laughs> the cut price lassie or the, the upmarket littlest hobo. Yes. <laughs> but his writing career ended shortly after. In 1969, that was his final piece of television. Is he all right? Did he, he didn't die or anything, did he? No, he must have retired. I mean, um, he was 54 when his last commissioned piece or his last IMDb credit. But he died in 2001. Oh, right. So it wasn't as if, you know, it, you know, he must have had a quite a lengthy retirement. <laughs> Good luck to him. Yeah. But yeah, an American from the American system. I, I suppose he did a, a creditable job in this, mm. given that it was... Here's some footage. Yeah, see what you can yeah, do. It's, it's essentially well, a bottle episode, really, isn't it? Yeah. And also, I think Robert Asher and Nesbitt as well, a lot of them were saying, I have no idea what the hell is going on. Yeah. And you could see why, because I don't think anyone did. Yeah, no, absolutely. Uh, it doesn't... I mean, I, I feel like we're piling on this episode a little bit, but um, it, it it's a bit like the computer in, in the general. Once mm. you actually start asking why, the, the, episode, the, logic crumbles. the episode blows up. <laughs> yeah. 
Like, I mean, the the the, the end when he's got um, the bomb in, yeah. in the thing, and he actually gives it to when it's supposed to go off. Yeah. Darren Nesbitt stood right next to him. Yeah, that, yeah, that doesn't make sense, so, knowing that you're stood next to a bomb. It needs to go off now. Yeah. Uh, is that, well, maybe you should move away? <laughs> yeah. I'd say a good 50 feet? <laughs> you're going to die now. But he's out of shot. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, there's, there's a lot of logic inconsistencies in this episode. Oh, yeah. This, this does not um, stand up to any kind of scrutiny. Let's talk about guest stars. Okay. This has a plethora it does. of guest stars. A plethora? We have the, the wonderful Australian actress Annette Andre, who we've mentioned, yes. playing number eight. She's still my beating heart. Or Monique. She gets a name as well, a little bit like Alison. When, oh, yes. when she enters her father's shop, he says, I'm Monique. And has a black, black badge. Black badge. Yeah. I d- I've, I've given up on the symbolism. No, I think, I think, I think that basically, just... when, when you get your badge, I think you get them in different colours and you can match your outfits. <laughs> we have um, the wonderful Mark Eden. Who was probably more famous in Britain for Coronation Street. Yeah. For getting killed by a tram in Blackpool as Alan Bradley. <laughs> <laughs> That's probably where most British audiences would know him from. Yeah, well, yeah, he was on there for, for many years, wasn't he? Yeah. he? He was in one of the first episodes of Doctor Who. He was in Marco Polo, playing Marco Polo. What, the game? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. uh, alongside Darren Nesbitt. Hey! So they'd worked together before. Well, they've. I do you know? It'd be quite nice. I bet everyone apart from McGowan was like a schoolboy, yeah. just kind of giggling together. And as soon as he said, "What's you all laughing about?" Yeah, oh, nothing, nothing, nothing. And of course, Nesbit had also worked with McGowan, hadn't he, on the Adventures of Lancelot and Danger Man. and Danger Man? Yeah. yeah. So it was, you know, there was there's some familiar faces. But the, the the core of this, the reason I wanted to get to this okay. so early, because I I love this. We have three famous parents. Oh, oh, okay. Um, we'll go with the obvious one. We have Wanda Ventham. Ah, Benedict uh, Cumberbatch's mum. Benedict Cumberbatch's yeah. mum, absolutely. We also have Charles Lloyd Pack, who yep. plays the artist on number 116. Trigger's dad. Trigger's dad. From, and Emily Lloyd's uh, granddad. Yes, from uh, Only Fools and Horses, the mm. British sitcom. And my favourite, Andre... Van Gesegem, the outgoing number two. Ah, uh, Dave Van Gesegem's dad. <laughs> no, <laughs> Joanna Van Gesegem's dad. Oh, from... Duty Free. Ah, it's in, we got it in. Linda. <laughs> Seriously, Linda's father, Linda, played by Joanna, that's her father. Andre. Really? Yeah. I Who don't... knew back when we did that episode <laughs> that we'd get another Juicy Free reference? I in. think Juicy Free is turning out to be the, like, the sister show of yeah. The Prisoner. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Keith Barron as number six. <laughs> Amy's a, number two. I'm not a number. <laughs> Linda. <laughs> but what a, I mean, what a, so that, I mean, uh, not forgetting Martin Miller mm-hmm. as the watchmaker as well, but what a fantastic guest cast yes. for this. I mean, it's, uh, yeah, it's... It's not. It's not an unenjoyable uh, episode. It's just kind of after after the quality of. The, of I mean, it's coming after Hamlet to Anvil, which is a great mm. one, and it's, it's the run has been pretty consistent. Mm. This just felt like a. It's just, just a a misstep. Yeah. It yeah. was. It was. It was shoddy, Chris. It was shoddy. It was shoddy. <laughs> and um, Swanek's back. Ah uh, yes, with a, with a bit more hair. Oh, did you notice? No, that, I didn't notice around, that. around the back, it's Maybe almost. It's one of the strangest hairlines yeah. I've ever seen. Uh, but no, he's, I think he seems to have uh, rather resented being away for I think five episodes. I mean, I'm back now. I think he went to HR. Oh, yeah. They, they reversed the decision on his firing. 
Uh, yeah, HR, they would have come down hard on number two. Yes. Uh, no, it's great to see him back as well. Yeah. Uh, in, in old stock footage and new footage as well. Yes, yes, <laughs> that's the classic. Yeah, <laughs> there's a bit of a smirk on that stock footage as well, isn't there? <laughs> there is, yeah, there's a bit of a smirk. And this is the 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 only episode that we really see an acting number two. Again, it's a sort of maybe they had to do this for the sake of the plot, but it makes mm-hmm. practically no sense whatsoever. No, especially after the election episode in Free for All. Yeah, where you elect, you know, it's unless this is after an election, and you know, obviously the you can't just say right, you're number two. But that's what they did in free for all. It's like here's the badge, and yeah, off you go. There was no, oh yeah, you're you're the incumbent number two. And it was a period where, you know, we we kind of transfer power. It's instant in free for all. But at this, it's like Darren Nesbitt's character is sat in there, and he's he is number two. He is number two. But it's it's the kind of thing that's it's necessitated by. The requirements of the plot, mm. not logic or sense or oh. any kind of... The outgoing number two says that he's been away and he's returning to hand over power. What's the so point? He's gardening leave? What's <laughs> going on? He's cracking on. Yeah, and, and who's, trying to, who's trying to kill him? Because this is the thing, Nesbitt, uh, he does a lot of his, his acting on a phone. Mm. He's, and he's, he's very good. He's, and he's, with his glasses. His, yeah, uh, yeah. Uh, a bit, a bit of prop, a, a bit of business with the glasses, and uh, uh, what? I was but, actually reading. There is a drinking game. <laughs> There's a prison drinking game, and one of them is how many times Darren Nesbit removes his glasses. <laughs> You'll be under the table in no time. <laughs> but I, I think that's something that Darren came up with as as, as a conceit for his character, or something for his character to. Or maybe just something for him to do because he had yeah. no idea what the hell was going Actors on. Actors love props. Oh yes. You know, they love having something. I mean, Noel Coward liked cigarettes and cigarette cases and striking up and things like that are, are brilliant for an actor yeah. because it gives them that sense of realism. And I wonder if knowing that he, Darren Nesbitt played this part in a state of confusion, <laughs> you know, putting the glasses on and off, it gives it's, him something it's to There's a life raft for him. Yeah. Did I ever tell you the Donald Pleasant story? No. With um, uh, it, was, it was Frank Langella was talking about this on the Dracula documentary, but... Apparently, Coral Brown said to him, "Oh God, Pleasant's no, he's a handkerchief actor." He said, "What? Oh, he's, it's, he'll just he'll play with it. He'll don't get into a two shot with him because he just plays with a handkerchief, or he'll take a bag of sweets and start eating them, or just do anything. Which means you can't cut around him. He's got to be in the shot. So yeah, if you're in a two shot with him, they they can't edit him out. God, <laughs> but isn't that lovely? A handkerchief actor. Handkerchief. Actor. <laughs> just imagine that. <laughs> Stop it." <laughs> There's a line in this, and, and it goes back to what we were talking about in Free For All mm-hmm. with Eric Portman's uh, number two. So number two mentions that they've developed a drug called Moprobamate. Uh, there is a real drug called Meprobamate. Oh, yes. Which is an anxiety drug. But there's a little play on words here where he says Moprobamate, that we've developed. The, the point is what I'm trying to say is that the village has developed this drug. Uh, yes, and we were talking about exports and yeah, what the and village does and what the scientist does in, in free-for-all. Kind of harkens, harkens back to that a little bit. Yes, it's a test lab. Are they a far, big farmer? Oh, here we go. Is the you, village... You and your conspiracy <laughs> theories. <laughs> but is, is the village creating drugs? Yeah. Are they a big pharmaceutical company? <laughs> no, that's a good point. Uh, it's quite effective as well. Mm. Your pupils are contracted. Well, there's another great bit of uh, Magooan unique line reading yeah. what does he say how does he pronounce the word phony phony <laughs> <laughs> it's, 
This, what are you doing, Pat? God, I'm having a nervous breakdown. But I wonder also if he's directing at that point or if you've got somebody like Bob Asher who is already on the wrong foot with him mm. and he's doing some of these takes and, and a director who, as you know, is their job is to yeah, direct it, the actors. There were some of his line readings. I thought, is he just trying to throw off the director at some point? Yeah. Is he being deliberately obtuse? You know, would the director not just say, Kurt, can we, Pat, just rein no. in a little bit? Move on. Yeah. <laughs> no. <laughs> There's another line that number two says when Annette Andre's character faints mm. or collapses. He says, she's become a lady in distress. Ah. Which goes back to our well, we, we've, number we've, six Achilles' heel, isn't it? Yes, yes. Which again, I mean, it's a, by this point, this must be the, what the eighth time they've used it. It's, mm. it's become a bit of a, a, a tired cliche now, uh, yeah, isn't it? Not even a it's beyond trope. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> I think it just again, it's just showing that he has weakness. Yeah, and it is around women, which is ironic considering how he basically treats his female co-stars or, or interplays with his female co-stars. Yeah. There's a little bit of a contradiction there. Well, yeah, I mean, to be honest, when we spoke to Jane Merrow about this and mm. they got on like a house on fire, I think it just, I think he just reserved a, a baffling contempt for Annette Andre, didn't he? Mm. I don't think anyone else, everyone else was saying how wonderfully Pat was to work with, you know. It, it just seemed to just all go wrong yeah. on this episode. And, she, and do you know what? I mean, she was great in the episode. So there was, mm. it was like, well, God, I can see her, his point. She was dreadful. <laughs> she was charming and um, and vulnerable and 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 strong and you know challenging and you know there's nothing there to get upset about. No, there's also uh, we were talking before about the stock footage. Yes, I mean, there's a scene between number two and, and supervisor, and they're discussing the procedure with the door. <laughs> he said, "Well, we left it open." Because we thought she'd come in. Well, I wanted it, you know. He's saying, well, no, that's not the procedure. There's, there's this conflict between number two and the supervisor in terms of how they should and should be doing things. Mm. I'm, up, I'm up for that being character building. I'm up for that being how this number two is going to yeah. play it. But in terms of a narrative sense, it just felt a little bit odd. Like it was shot and somebody would have gone, yeah, we can cut that. We don't really need that. Yeah, it's that's, better o- that's to- overshoot. Yeah, and the you know the, the the mechanics of the village are better when they're not explained. Mm. But then to have a number two saying, well, you know, I, I didn't tell you to do that. Well, we thought it would be, well, that's not what I said. You know, I'd want to do it, do it this way. That shows conflict between the village. Yeah. I mean, the village hierarchy. I suppose. I remember this episode when I, when I was a kid watching it and thinking that he was... He was such an incredibly sort of young, kind of, quite very charismatic, yeah, dynamic, pop, pop star looking actor, yeah. Darren Esbitt back then. And I remember him being, that's how I thought he, but actually watching it again, he's a lot nastier mm. than I remember. Especially towards the end. Oh yeah, but he's, he's nasty to his subordinates as well. I think everybody knows somebody who's, t- who's spoken down to them in this way, sort of, uh, well, I was going to do it. Well, why don't you do it now then? That sort of that sort <laughs> yeah. of snipey. Yeah. Um, so yeah, he's he's a bit he's very ruthless. And there's a bit of passive aggressiveness as well with his character. Yeah, but uh, when he's aggressive, he's 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 very aggressive. Yeah. He's, quite, you know, he's a bit more formidable than I thought. I remembered him as being slightly foppish, mm. but I suppose that's the you know when number six comes in, he puts on the whole ah my dear chap. Yeah. And his tea and that's quite a nice way where he sort of t- turns the button with his foot, mm. uh, very loush. Yeah. But um, no, I know I, I know what you mean. It's just kind of a lot of this. I was thinking, why why have they done this? Why and have they kept this in? It's quite nice to see a young number two. Yeah, yeah. As well, after all these older 
men, essentially. Well, a couple of older women. It's what was going on at the time, man. Mm. I mean, the 60s was was all about youth. Yeah, yeah, yeah. There was something very swinging 60s about Darren yeah. Nesbitt. But the hair, I mean, I know the, the hair was just a layover from his previous film role, wasn't it? Because he was working with uh, Sinatra, wasn't he? And he dyed oh, his yeah. hair That's for right, that. Yeah. Um, and he kept it for... And I he mean, kept it for the prisoner. But it works. Yeah, it does, because it, 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 it stands out. Yeah. Um, Especially with those glasses as well. Oh, yeah. Gives him almost like a Joe Knighty yes. feel, doesn't <laughs> yeah. it, a little bit? But uh, <laughs> Why is he speaking... Is there any, any relevance to that? He's speaking on a yellow phone. Do you notice? I didn't notice that, no. Maybe it goes with his hair. Yeah. But it did make me wonder... Who the hell is he talking to? Is he talking? Is number one trying to organise this assassination? Yeah, because he's do, he's doing it in cahoots. He's reporting back to somebody who. But is it, why would number one want number two dead? Maybe number one on the red phone is. That's what I thought. It, it, maybe it's the yellow phone. Is the Mark Stein number one? Ah, <laughs> that's 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 an alternative reality where number six goes in down into and he meets number one and it's like a Bond villain who swings around on a chair and it's a famous actor that we didn't see coming like Orson Welles that we we talked it about turns around. and uh, ah I've been expecting you Mr Six <laughs> no but I mean seriously I mean does it make any sense to you that somebody else is organising a higher up is organising the the impending death who is HR. Again, yeah. <laughs> now, that is passive-aggressive. Yeah. Marjorie, what's the standard procedure on outgo number two? Uh, let me just check, Phil. Uh, yeah, we we'll kill him. We start with A, assassination. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, uh, How old is he? Yeah, uh, just just put him in a helicopter and blow it up. <laughs> <laughs> we've uh, we've driven our knee swiftly into the groin of this episode. Maybe uh, uh, any any positives? Well, uh, There's the, some interesting things, yeah. if I may. The jamming thing. Hmm. Which is about, oh, you're referring to jammers, which made, immediately made me think of the Women's Institute. <laughs> I'm thinking of Bob Marley. Yeah. <laughs> so that, that's where we're at. Yeah. <laughs> but of course, they're talking about the, the wartime radio jammers, aren't they? Like interference of radio signals, of yeah. blocking radio signals is where but, the term comes from. Uh, with prisoner prisoner like uh, prescience, mm. it does kind of foreshadow the whole thing of you know, fake news and misinformation. Yeah, I suppose to a certain degree by, it does. I'm yeah. sure by accident. Oh, yeah, absolutely. <laughs> because basically they're just trying to disrupt the, the village's operations, aren't they? Mm. They're, they're just rebels. They're resistance or maquis fighters almost. Yeah. Trying to put misinformation or to stop things from happening. It's quite interesting that episodes will shift in their depiction of the villagers. In some episodes, the villagers are completely uh, sheep-like mm. and hostile even. And then you get sort of checkmate when you start to see that there are pockets of resistance. And then you, it's kind of reminds you that actually they are all ex-spies. Mm. They, they, are, they are quite capable of uh, getting out of it. I suppose you, can, you could basically take in a little bit of Marxism, a Marxist film theory yeah. into this, um, in terms of not so much class, but more to do with, first of all, I was going to say people like Kulshov, where they have you know, the uh, Kulshov technique, which I think... Hitchcock did a lot better. You have the picture of the man, and then you have a bowl of soup, and then you have his face again, and then you have a dead child, bizarrely. And then you have, like, a pretty lady, and yeah. then his reaction. And basically, the audience puts their own emotion onto the man's reaction in the way it's edited. Mm. Hitchcock did it better. Hitchcock sees a, a, a woman with a baby, and it cuts to Hitchcock, and he smiles. And then you put a woman in a bikini in, and you put the same piece of footage of Hitchcock. That's, yes. 
and he becomes a dirty old man. Mm. But it's exactly the same piece of footage, just takes on a different meaning based on the context. Uh, and that's the Kulshoff technique, which is from the Marxist filmmaker, like Eisenstein, and yeah, from yeah. that era. And there's a little bit of that in this episode, where the where number two, the outgoing number two, shows almost like the montage cut against McGowan's reactions, mm. where it takes on a different meaning. But not just that; that's a blatant Marxist element, I think. But also is this the strength of the, like you were saying, these pockets of resistance. It's not number six on his own. It's number six with a team, which he had, I suppose, in checkmate, but they ultimately let him down. At least this team... Or he let them down. Or the, I, absolutely. At least in this episode, that team are actually supporting him. Yeah. The other thing that was just quite interesting about this episode, with again, with its prescience, I mean, if there was one thing that became fashionable in the 60s, apart from the Mersey Beat sound and lava <laughs> lamps, it was assassinating people. Mm. We'd already had JFK and Malcolm X in 65. Mm-hmm. This was before uh, Martin Luther, Luther King, King and yeah. Robert F. Kennedy. So, I mean, assassination was a very, very sort of 60s thing. Yeah. And this is the only episode which actually specifically deals with it. Mm-hmm. So it's, in a way, it is, it's kind of, in that respect, it's got its finger on the uh, on the pulse a bit. Because there are some elements of the Manchurian Candidate, obviously of, without the brainwashing, but the assassination. Trying to prevent an assassination, yeah. Yeah, um, yeah that was a very sort of... Frankenheim is kind of paranoid. The Seven Days of May is the same sort of thing. Mm. Oh, it's more of a coup, isn't it? I really want to talk about a day in the life of number six. <laughs> Because it's just so bizarre. I mean, first, my first question is, obviously it's Robert Rietti mm. doing the voiceover. Yes. He's but, in this a lot, isn't he? Yeah, but who is the voice supposed to be? There's like this disembodied voice, but there are shots of the computer as he's speaking. So is this the computer speaking? Yes, yeah, it's how. But at, at the time, computers didn't speak like that on television. Did they? they were all like that. <laughs> you know. It's an odd one, isn't it? Because yeah. it could be the man who is working on the computer, or it could just be a you know a an audio realization of what the computer's reading out, and that's the leap we're supposed to to take with it. Yeah. But it's just I just it just stuck out to me. It was a little bit odd <laughs> when you say you know he does he goes to his homemade gym. Uh, yes. Where he lets Frank Mayer practice his uh, <laughs> acrobatics. And throws punches into a camera. Yeah. <laughs> he water skis. <laughs> but what does it say? Is, but it's it only says, before nine o'clock. I know. God almighty. He goes to his homemade gym and you can see him doing all that. And you can clearly tell it's not Magoon. I mean, even on a small screen, you can see it's not Magoon. He then goes water skiing. He then plays chess. This, again, is prescient in terms of the algorithms that dictate social media. Yeah. You know, and how these algorithms build up these profiles on you. They've built up a profile on number six, to, which is so accurate. I mean, it's, a, it's stretching credibility in that it predicts the future in him buying the a, bag, a, of, a bag of candy. A bag of candy. Not, slash not, sweets. Yeah, not sweets. <laughs> candy. And also the, the fact that it doesn't realise that this happens seemingly every single day. Hmm. What? And you can tell us a little bit when he's playing the chess game. Yeah, and it's always an 11 move checkmate. <laughs> you think the other guy would just, I think I'll oh, put the knight I'm not first. playing him again. <laughs> but if you look at the positioning, you've got the chess player, you've got Frank Mayer, mm. and then you can see the back of his head and you can see the, the clock tower. You can see the, the main area because you're down by the yeah. stone boat, aren't you? By the hotel. By the hotel. And then it switches places because as that shot then reverses, 
behind number six is the bell tower. A little bit of a continuity issue there, but it's nothing major. But of course, they are recycling a lot of footage, aren't they here? Yeah, it seems to be the raison d'etre of the whole episode. But what I find really odd, and it goes back to what you were talking about with the post box, and I was talking about with the phone, is that the computer engineer or whatever he is hands the printout to a woman who then hands it to Wanda Ventham's computer attendant, who's only about six feet away. He doesn't get up and put it on a desk. He actually hands it to an intermediary who then hands it to Ventham. I suppose they've, they've just got more staff than they need. Yeah, what, what do I do? Oh, you just take and pass and then walk away. <laughs> We've, you've, you've done your training. We've been yeah. through this. Oh, it's God. bizarre, isn't it? Is that a subtle way of just saying that sometimes within companies, within businesses, within the workplace, that roles are created <laughs> that have no value and can easily be done by other people. I, I reckon they accidentally cast the role twice <laughs> yeah. and both of them showed up. Wanda Ventham, I thought I was playing. No, I, oh. And the guy in the top just sat down. And went, I'm, <laughs> I'm already well, here, folks. Well, listen, you're... You've already been paid. You stand in the middle, yeah. right, hand it to her, you hand it to Wanda. It, it, talking about the algorithm and the, the prediction, it, it does stretch credibility a little bit, doesn't it? Because he goes to the shop yeah. and he buys, originally it was going to be cigarettes, but they changed it to sweets. Yeah, sweets. But it's sweets. that American selling, isn't it? It's yeah. the, you know, we're going to call it sweets. And then number two is going to say candy. And then... She's going to say, oh, I will have to have my sweets mm. or whatever. So then the Americans know and the British know what each other are talking about. Yeah. But even the fact that that should happen is beyond an algorithm. No, it's, it's just not the best writing, really. No. It, um, it's, that goes into sci-fi. Yes. I mean, I know social media can predict what, you know, they, they can show you things that you might want to buy or they can show you things that you might want to see or things that are going to influence you. That's, you know, but that's built on a profile. Mm. That's completely out there. That's Mystic Meg crystal ball stuff. The fact that they should be there at the right time and they, unless they were following her as well and they knew had no money and they knew that she was a woman in distress so he would offer to buy the, the bag of sweets. Who knows? But I find that a little bit of a leap. So I've just written, I've written candy, WTF, that's bollocks. I'm keeping that in. <laughs> <laughs> because how does that, as a, as a screenwriter, how does that advance the plot? It, it doesn't, it's, it's, it's padding. Because it doesn't have anything to do with the, the, the narrative of the oh. plot anyway. The narrative is that there's an assassination. It doesn't help number two to know what number six's daily uh, routine is. No. It, not in the, in the context of this episode. He doesn't need to know where number six is going to be at all times. Yeah, it's just a, 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 because that would it work. It's just simply using up yeah. stock footage of number six or Frank Mayer walking around. If they were there waiting for him on the bell tower when he was going to foil the plot, mm. surely they would have used that information to know where he was going to be at a certain time yeah. to foil it. it it's, it's there's, there's no, it doesn't hold up. Does it doesn't it? hold up at all? My favourite one of um, scenes that should not have been shot is the room. And the flower shop scene. <laughs> you know where Tommy Wiseau yeah, yeah. turns up at a flower shop, goes in <laughs> and says, I'll have a dozen red roses, please. And she's like, oh, hi, Johnny. I didn't know it was you. How could you not? How, how could you mistake that face for anybody else? And then she, she goes, you're my favourite customer. And he's like, thanks a lot. Bye. <laughs> hi, doggy. And he walks out. And it's like... 
why did you go to the trouble of shooting that scene? You know, in, in that in that florist, when you could have just turned up at Lisa, Lisa his yeah. girlfriend, with a bunch of roses saying, "I bought these on the way home." Oh, hi, Mark. <laughs> it's um, everybody, after every single scene in the room. Yeah. That's what you think. Yeah. Why? Why the did they that? shoot? Yeah, <laughs> it makes no sense. No. I wouldn't say it's as bad as that in this episode, but no, no, there no. are some odd choices of structure in the writing, I think. Yeah, but I think it's um, it's just... They, I mean, I think they spent weeks desperately trying to work out how to do this. This, this mm. wasn't a... Um, this was an episode where a great idea was turned into a great script and that it was shot. Mm. It, this is a, the most haphazard way of making anything. Mm. And I think this is literally, I think this was the best they could do. And it's a shame because they've got such a good supporting cast. Yes, yeah. I mean, it's not, it's, it's not without its merits. Mm. I mean, for, for, just for two seconds, mm. it has possibly the most beautiful shot of Port Merion that's in the entire series. Mm. Do you remember that? It's, you'll see it when it's uh, listeners, when you actually do watch this episode. This, where am I going? There's no point in the shot being there, I would say, but it's just staggeringly beautiful. Yeah. There's, st- there's stuff to enjoy, but mm. it's just, if you think about it for more than two seconds, you just end up scratching your head. And the, the whole thing with the Kosho. Yes. Which again. I thought goes on a bit too long. Yeah, I mean, again. I, th- I think there was probably, well, we need five. We need three minutes 28. Yeah. Right. What can we fill? Well, there's that thing of. You know, Patrick invents this game with a paddling pool and a cycling helmet. The health oh. and safety nightmare. Yeah. I mean, obviously, Mark Eden's character, 100, needs to go and swap the watches, doesn't he? Yes. Originally, it was going to be judo, I've read. But they substitute it for Kosho because then it fits in with Hammer into Anvil. So you can reuse footage. And they do, don't they? They use the Basil Hoskins footage. Oh, do they? There's a, there's a guy called Jerry, Cra- uh, Jerry Crampton, who is the stunt guy that Magoon's fighting but if you look you can see that it's clearly Basil Hoskins mm. from Hammond to Anvil <laughs> that they've, they've substituted and, and cut into that episode yes. just to make Kosho a little bit longer but it's not needed uh, no and it's uh, the rules are still baffling <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> we should we should actually try and find a gym that would actually allow us to do that yeah I think one of us would die yeah <laughs> <laughs> another thing I've from a, obviously not being a writer, why wasn't the outgoing number two introduced earlier in the episode? Why? Because again, it's just they they needed it to work in in that way for for to get the the plot to work. Mm. That's not how plots work. If it doesn't make sense, then you've got to take it out. But they've mm. they've left it in because they have to have that scene where he goes in and it's a new number two. Mm. Well, how can you have the new number two if you want to, if Nesbitt's the one who he's an outgoing number two? Well, what? Well, why's Nes- what's Nesbitt been doing there? Yeah, my 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 apps. It's it, all it, it's they're writing it's round. Messy. They're, it's messy. They're isn't writing it? around a problem. Yeah, as, uh, and not solving it. Yeah. Another mildly interesting point is that you've got a number two, who is in a way, on number six's side. Hmm. He's, he's basically been told that the village he works, for, the people he worked for, yeah. want him dead. Yeah, and he's uh, he's. He's not quite resigned to it. So but he, he kind of caves a little bit, quite quickly, doesn't he? He's a little bit standoffish with number six. But then he start, you can see he starts to think about it. Yeah. And he asks for the footage from the uh, records. And the guy's like, there's no point. It doesn't yep. exist. Well, how do you know? It's not your <laughs> job. He's, quite, he's got a touch of the Alistair Sim mm. about him in this. There's a lot of coffee drinking yes. in this episode they've moved well. up, they've moved, Yeah. Again, yeah, normally it's tea. 
But I think there's, there's at least two or three separate instances where six and uh, number eight sit down and drink coffee or espresso coffee, judging by the, the cups at the cafe. It's just a nice element to just get them together and to, to have that conversation. Yeah, Quite easy yeah. to set up as well, isn't it? What it did like, because we love prescience, don't we? We yeah. love how the prisoners are prescience, is number two's glasses have an intercom built into them. Yeah, but how can how can Mark Eden hear him? That's Well, I suppose he's got the modern day he's not, of an Apple watch, hasn't he? <laughs> Which you can make calls on. You can hear and talk into them. Now, he talks into his watch. So I suppose maybe Is he talking into his watch? I thought he was yeah. there going when he's mumbling. You can see he raises his wrist to his mouth as he's talking to number two. Maybe he's, there's a, a Bluetooth earpiece. <laughs> but there's, um, there's a company who are selling glasses not dissimilar. What, with uh, microphones? No, with the, yeah, with the, I have microphones, but they also have little cameras in that you can take photos. There was the Google Glass cameras that came out a couple of years ago. There's, there's one you can buy these now, um, which are Bluetooth to your phone. You can take photos with them. So see. 50 years later, we have this technology. We have these in-ear, you know, like the AirPods and stuff like that. We have this technology. We can make calls on our Apple Watches and things like that. So... Jokin's maybe one of the re- another one of the reasons why the prisoner hasn't sort of dated so much is because so much of what was science fiction mm. in '67 has now become science fact. Is now people can actually relate uh, to something like the prisoner for the, the amazing way that the the stuff we have now is is kind of being used back then in but, a way that they can't maybe relate to. Well, the maybe, parent. but but imagine trying to make the prisoner today and trying to introduce technology that would be futuristic. How would where would you go with that? I don't know. Well, I, oh, my, all I want to do is dial stuff back. Yeah. I'm, I'm sick of things being invented. <laughs> Who's the two? So this week we have Darren Nesbitt, who was mm. a familiar face on television, but also had started a career in film as well. He was in that fantastic film with Dirk Bogart, wasn't he? A victim. He was. I think that was what basically made it. He was the blackmailer. Mm. With his very dark hair in that one and leather trousers, he was always on a motorbike. Yeah, he was fantastically nasty in that. But he was he was balancing quite a fantastic career in both television and yeah. film. Well, but I think Where Eagles Does is probably his most famous cinema role, would you say? Yeah, I suppose. Cause again, because of the hair. And he's a quite unique actor, look, mm. looking actor. So he's, he's, when he's in something, he stands out. Yeah, I mean, he'd worked with McGowan a few times. He'd worked on The Adventures of Sir Lancelot with mm-hmm. McGowan, and mm-hmm. I think that's how they first came to meet. He'd worked two episodes of, of Danger Man yeah. as well. So him and McGowan had obviously knew each other and knew how each other worked. Yeah, um, He was in one of the first episodes of Doctor Who as well, oh, yeah. in Marco Polo, as we said, with Mark Eden. And the Sinatra film, The Naked Runner, was the one he dyed his hair for yeah. immediately prior to The Prisoner. I wonder how he found his experience making The Prisoner. Why don't we ask him? Well, that's a good idea, because we've got him right here. But thank you so much for doing this. It's uh, really, really no, cool. No, no, it's, 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 it's fine. It's, uh, you know, it's fine. I, sometimes I think, you know, as far as The Prisoner is concerned, my opinion and my knowledge of it is not necessarily uh, what people might want to hear. <laughs> <laughs> I remember they finally got me to Port Marion, you know, the the um, you know the the fans, you know. Oh, yeah, yeah. And they wanted me to give a speech, which I did for hours and hours. And I thought, you know, you might lynch me by the end of it. They <laughs> were quite pleasant. I'm glad. What did you think of Port Marion? I thought it was absolutely great, and they were lovely people, and they were so 
so kind. And we, no, my wife and I had a great time there. Great time. I know I thought it was a beautiful setting, you know, when the, the tide goes out, the tide comes in. Oh, yeah. Beautiful, beautiful. Only it's very difficult to get there. When I had a yacht years ago, I used to sail to Ireland and I got to a little place called Skull. You could get there by boat, but go by car would take you all day. Well, I mean, the, obviously, the first and most important question is, um, is how, how heavy were those glasses? In the prison, <laughs> we watched the episode last night, and um, oh, yes. magnificent. No, they, 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 they were fine. They were fine. Uh, Asher, who was the director of that, he knocked on my dressing room door because that episode had to be rewritten by George Markstein, who was the brains of the prisoner. I was going to be the permanent number two, and then he wouldn't have it. He didn't want the opposition, I don't think, and so that had to be rewritten. And Asher knocked on my door and he said, hiya, Darren. I said, hello. He said, we've never worked together. I said, no, no. He said, I know this is what our director shouldn't say, but do you know what the f*** this is all about? <laughs> <laughs> and I, I said to him, I have no idea. I have absolutely no idea. He said, well, they've said to me, I can go and see the first episode and that will explain it. Have you had breakfast? And I said, no, actually, I didn't have breakfast. He said, we're going to have breakfast. So I had breakfast, came back, there was a knock on the door. Hiya, John. You've seen it? He said, yes. I said, well, he said, I've got no idea what this is all about. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, so I, I played him as if he didn't know what was going on. And uh, McGowan, because um, <laughs> we... we I can't say that we were close. <laughs> said, what are you doing? You're playing as if you don't know what's going on. I said, not only do you not know what's going on, <laughs> the he, the director, doesn't know what's going on. And I can assure you, the whole f crew don't know what's going on. <laughs> and if you think I'm going to play someone who knows what's going on, when he doesn't know what's going on, you're absolutely up your own ass. I noticed from, from an actor's point of view, did you decide on the glasses as a as a prop? Yeah, I thought that, you know, putting them on and off all the time will, will pretty well explain he doesn't know what's going on. <laughs> he really doesn't know. <laughs> How did you first meet George Markstein? Well, actually, he called me because I was living in the country. And uh, he said... Uh, Hi, I'm George, and also the Grade organization. I mean, Lou Grade was a great, and Leslie Grade were, were, were great friends, of course, with my father. And so they said, George Markstein's going to give you a call. He's doing a television series for us. And so George phoned, and we had a meeting, I think it was at the, uh, the Dorchester, when he said, this is what I want, um, what I want to do. You know, would you be interested? I said, sure, yeah, that's fine. But I mean to say, when I did special grants, I only did two two series. I I would never do more because I get a I get bored, and and actors seem to do a do a series and stay on it until they're ninety eight. I don't fancy that. So I, mind you, I've always been very lucky. I I never needed to uh, think, oh my God, I. You know, I hope they do another series and another series and I can pay the rent and all this sort of thing. Can I, we're discussing your performance as number two because you, yeah. you kind of stand out compared to the other number twos. 
with their, their very kind of uh, theatrical, very Shakespearean. And your approach is very modern. Well, yeah, because, I mean, you know, I mean, nobody is all bad. I mean, you know, you play them, you play them nice because what you're actually doing is unpleasant and you don't have to do any more. You know, that's it. You know, if you're playing, if you're playing Macbeth, you don't have to play him um, as a nasty man because what he does is enough to say he's nasty. <laughs> <laughs> going back to what you said about, uh, you know, Mark Stein saying that you were going to be number two throughout yeah. the run. How do you think you would have developed the character over those 17 episodes? I think it would have stayed the same. I, I think that he, he was, he would be set in a situation whereby it was so rarefied because George actually was a spy. Mm. He actually was a spy when he didn't, he sort of winked at me. So he actually knew uh, things about Special Branch. In fact, they, they, they bugged our phones because they wanted to know why some of our stories uh, were rather, you know, you know, near the mark. But he knew about this spy home where spies sort of retired to. And so I would have played him exactly the same, really out of his depth, you know, uh, really. Or didn't know what was going on. Oh, did <laughs> I mean, let's face it, did anybody? <laughs> did he watch all the whole series? Yes, I did watch a few. But, you know, he, he, was, um, he was round the twist. At, at the time? Was, or do you think oh, he'd been sent oh, round yeah. the twist? No, no, he was round the twist. Not only my opinion, but everybody thought that he was, you know, gone, uh, which he was. I mean, George walked out. Great organisation wouldn't do another series because they loathed him. I mean, that's yeah. why there was only one series. I mean, it's certainly well documented, isn't it? Um, Mark Eden and Annette Andre, your co-stars, both kind of came out and said it was a not not a nice working environment during no, the no, absolutely not. I mean, it didn't matter to me because I knew the whole crew. I'd worked with them so many times in films and all the rest of it. And I can sort of keep my own. But, and you know, but she was saying, like I said, you know, he wouldn't have anything to do with women, you know, and there was no rapport. There was no uh, warmth. There was no kissing. And he actually was asked to do Bond. Mm -hmm. uh, and he turned it down because he wouldn't touch women. Because you'd worked with him before on... Um, yeah. Sir Lancelot and Danger Man. Danger Man. Did you, was your work? Was it strictly professional working environments or yeah. working relationship on those shows? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because he used to try and upstage me. Which <laughs> <laughs> was a mistake. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, did you see Tucked? Yes. Oh, fantastic! Yes, absolutely fantastic. I've been recommending that to people on Twitter and everything like that. And I was overwhelmed when I went to LA because it was in a little cinema with all film people. And uh, it was quite astonishing what they said. Really made me very happy, very happy. Quite rightly so. Yeah, it's a proper sort of film of the moment. But for you, I thought, I mean, that, I mean, that, that lovely, well, I say lovely line, just at the beginning when you say sort of, no family, no friends. And there's a sort of, yeah. but a, a kind of, kind of contempt. You start saying it proudly and also sort of, it was a wonderful film. Funny enough, there's a young guy, Jamie Patterson, whose father came to lay some carpet in one of my offices. <laughs> and this young man said, I want to be a film director. And I thought, oh, 
another one. <laughs> you know, another one. Anyway, he was a nice fellow. I was chatting away this, that, and the other, and he was asking me about all the films I'd done. And then a bit later on, he said, look, I've made a little film. I'd like you to have a look at it. And I thought, oh, <laughs> anyway, I watched this little thing and I said to him, Jamie, you've got talent. You can direct. And he said, oh, thank you. And he was bumming around Brighton, trying to get money doing this. And then he got in touch with me and said, I've written a film for you. And I, thought, oh, <laughs> and I said, oh, right. What do I do in it? And he said, well, you play <laughs> a drag queen and a crossdresser. And I went, pardon? <laughs> what? I said, I better read this. Anyway, to cut a long story short, it was this movie. And, uh, you know, it has been a great success. And Jamie has been signed by one of the biggest agents in Hollywood. That's fantastic. Mm. Yeah, he's a good director. Yes, I know. I've, I, I looked at his photography yes. expecting to see dozens of films behind it because it was so assured. Mm. And, yeah. uh, and and so nicely underdone. If you yeah, and we worked so well together. Melodramatically. But thank you again. Thank you so much. This has been a, a real pleasure and honour. It's, it's fine, chaps. Absolutely fine. I think I'll go in the jacuzzi. Nice. Yes, yeah, good idea. Why not? Yeah. <laughs> so please check out Tucked. Yes. It's a fantastic it, film. It really is a fantastic, very, very sweet point of film. He is staggeringly good in it. Mm. Uh, really should have got and it, it did get a few awards and a few nominations but it, it, he should have got a lot more traction for that it's, pr- it's quite quite possibly is his of, best work there's a lot of pathos in that as well yeah. it's quite a sentimental and heartwarming and film isn't it and kind of you know I, I, I kind of loathe to describe actors as brave <laughs> yeah. uh, when, when you see what's going on in the real mm. world you know but it, it was a very he, he puts himself on, on show there is clear- I think a lot of actors probably wouldn't have touched no, it's like, oh, I've got to be. Uh, he's, 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 you know, he, he reveals himself in, in all of it, basically strips, stripped of any vanity, this performance. Yeah. Scores. I, I think I'm going to have to give it a three. Yeah. Sorry, Darren. <laughs> Uh, despite Darren's wonderful performance, I think I think you you can't really give it much more than that. No, it's 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 okay, but and it's 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 a it's a barely salvaged mess. Yeah, uh, I think yeah, saved only by the wonderful guest stars. Brilliant I guest would stars, say. yeah. I but mean, it's I'd it, have to agree with you. I'd go definitely go for a three on yeah. this. It's not perfect. It's not great, but it's not. It, it it's it's not a total loss of an episode I, there are moments to enjoy yes within it um, I, th- there, there isn't a zero star prisoner episode no, um, no. but uh, yeah, this and even this even this as being a low score is still better than a lot of <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> TV shows today so we just have a very high bar with some episodes yes really, don't we it's okay mm. Yeah, it's a it's a three for me, Chris. <laughs> Free for all podcast was presented by Kai Ross and Chris Bainbridge. The theme tune was by Gordon Milton, and special thanks to Jemima Duncar for the artwork. Please see, see you. you. You can find us on Twitter at Free for All Pod or on Facebook at Podcast Free For All. And not to be one of those begging, insistent types, but uh, like, subscribe to your heart's content. Uh, It all helps spread the word. You are our advertising budget, so thank you very much. (laughs)